With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Attention. 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 Rosetta Stone invites you to be a part of its biggest language learning event in history. Because in 2011, we want to help 3 million people learn a new language. That's why we're going to give you an absolutely free demo of our language immersion technology. Call 1-800-522-1164. Developed to fully immerse you in your new language, the Rosetta Stone solution is easier than ever before. For your free demo, call 1-800-522-1164. 1-800-522-1164. Love Talk Radio. It's the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering you to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway Pierce. United Kingdom, hello Germany, hello Turkey, hello New Zealand, and hi to you wherever else you might be. Welcome to the Speedway Show and Idea Exchange, empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply by improving the quality of our personal, professional, and spiritual relationships. Our interesting topic for today is Give Me My Pet, things you probably did not know about animals, custody, and care. Pet lovers, this show is for you. We know there are many of you out there because some statistics indicate that in the U.S. alone, two-thirds of the population owns pets and spends $40 billion, that's billion with a B, Uh, $40 billion every year on those pets. Hello. I actually grew up with all sorts of pets around the house because my dad, in particular, was an avid animal lover. As a result, we had rabbits, geese, a falcon, peacocks, chickens, a steinbok, which is in the antelope family, and always they were dogs. I later found out from my mother, though, that he particularly got the German shepherds to scare the boys away as my sister and I got older. And wouldn't you know it, it worked. Have you ever wondered what would happen if two people got into a fight over who gets a pet after a breakup? With the rash of natural disasters we have seen in recent years, have you ever wondered about how animals are reconciled with their owners and what that takes? What if a pet is found to have been abused or neglected by its owner? Should the owner get it back? According to the American Pet Products Association 2011 to 2012 National Pet Owners Survey, there are approximately 78.2 million owned dogs just in the United States. 39% of U.S. households own at least one dog, 29% of owned dogs are adopted from an animal shelter. Cat lovers, we will not leave you out. There are approximately 86.4 cats in a million, uh, sorry, 86.4 million owned cats in the United States. 33% of U.S. households own at least one cat and 21% of owned cats were adopted from an animal shelter. To talk with me today about this fascinating topic is Barbara J. Gislison. Barbara is the founder of the law office of Barbara J. Gislison, a Minneapolis-based firm which provides strategic, cost-effective professional services to its clients in the areas of family law, 
Art and Entertainment Law, and the area we will draw from in our discussion today, of course, will be animal law. Barbara has more than 30 years of legal negotiation and litigation experience in her areas of practice, and she has some very impressive accomplishments along the way. When I started writing this introduction, I very quickly realized that I cannot possibly cover them all. So I will just give you a few highlights, and when I'm done, just remember these are just a few. Barbara Gisselson is an active member of both the American Bar Association, the ABA, and the Minnesota State Bar Association, the MSBA. She is founder and past chair of the American Bar Association Animal Law Committee in the Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section, affectionately known as TIPS. She created the ABA Animal Disaster Relief Network and developed a pet standards resolution adopted ABA-wide, chaired the Intellectual Property Law Committee of TIPS, serves on its book publishing board, and is the TIPS advisor to the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws. If that sounds highfalutin and important, that's because it is. Barbara served as the chair of the Insurance and Risk Management Committee of the Intellectual Property Law Section, advanced to a division leader, and chaired the section of Family Law Task Force on Emergency Management. Here in Minnesota, she has served as a legislation committee member for the MSBA Assembly and led the Family Law Section's Blue Ribbon Panel regarding Rules of Professional Conduct. Barbara is the founding chair of Minnesota's Animal Law Committee and Section, and she currently serves on the Section's Council. She is a member of the Minnesota Animal Disaster Coalition, the Horse Welfare Committee, and is a new presenter for the Minnesota Animal Control Officers Meeting on Anti-Cruelty Laws. Barbara has received a variety of awards for her tireless work. She has been recognized as a Minnesota super lawyer, an honor bestowed upon fewer, did I say fewer? Fewer than 2% of the lawyers in the state based on peer recommendations. So your peers have to think the world of you too. Among other recognitions, Barbara received special recognition for her work in the MSBA Animal Law Section, the MSBA Computer Law Section for her service in the MSBA Assembly. She was selected as a Top 40 Family Law Attorney by Minnesota Law and Politics, designated a leading American attorney by the American Research Corporation, and she was selected as a member of the Minnesota State Delegation to China. Barbara and I met when I was inducted as a fellow of the American Bar Foundation, an honorary organization whose membership is limited to 0.03% no, of legal professions, uh, professionals in the state. I was very excited to be a new fellow, but... Barbara had crossed that milestone a while before me. She had even been selected as a delegation member for the American Bar Fellows People-to-People Delegation to South Africa. And when she's not doing all of that, Barbara enjoys working with animals, kickboxing, and traveling internationally. Whew, my goodness. Barbara, welcome to the Speedway Show. I am so happy to be here and I am grateful to you to have me as your guest. Now, one of the things that makes this show so different from other relationship discussions when it comes to spirituality is our reliance on the life manual as a guidepost to living fully and increasing the success of our relationships. In case you're wondering, listeners, what a life manual is, it is the manual that is available for your body, mind, and spirit. Depending on your personal persuasion, you may choose to use the Hebrew Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the Christian Bible, some other holy writing that speaks to you, or I've actually had presenters who don't use one at all. 
and even for people who don't specifically use the life manual, what I find is that most people tend to have a personal philosophy on spirituality that guides their lives. Barbara, I'm going to ask you the question I ask all my guests. Do you read a life manual? And if not, share with us your philosophy on spirituality. I think the writing that influenced me greatly because I memorized the entire passage was a poem attributed to Chief Seattle, which was really a derivative work of something he wrote. And it ends, man is not the weaver of the web of life, but merely a strand in it. What man does to the web, he does to himself. And it's a beautiful presentation of how we're all interrelated, how animals are brothers and sisters, and how at the end of the day, we're all one. I very much see people as part of nature and not separate from it. And so I'm always looking for spiritual paths that show the world as one. Mm-hmm. Do you find them? Well, I have to say that I've been in many, many places that have been known for spiritual significance, and I found power in churches, I found power in, in Buddhist temples and Hindu temples, in places that people from all viewpoints regard as holy, when you stand in those special places, I can feel it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, not too long ago, in fact, it was at the beginning of this year, in I think it was February, I had a chance to go to Rome. And I was so excited about going. It was the highlight of, you know, all of my travels because I figured out that if I, if I, orchestrated it just so I would actually get to spend Sunday in the Vatican. So I get to Rome, and I did indeed. I went to um, Vatican City, and I attended uh, this Italian service in, in the Basilica, and it was just the most amazing experience. Now, the whole service was in Latin. I didn't understand a word, but and and I've had a lot of people since ask me, oh, so you are all excited about going to the Vatican. You must be Catholic. No, I'm not Catholic. <laughs> but I hear and I get exactly what you're saying, that if you if you go to places of worship, you feel that spiritual vibration. You feel God's presence. And, um, you know, wherever it is and however people worship, I, I find that, that that is true, that those who are seekers of spirituality, you can often, if you tune into it, you can often experience that. So I, I also some... feel that, that kind of spiritual presence, B-Way, in the presence mm-hmm. of animals. Well, we are going to talk about that. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what that looks like right now? I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask you our first question, okay. <laughs> and you can weave it in as we go along. Okay. So let's let's talk about this topic of pets and animals. What was it that first sparked your interest in animals that ultimately led you to a practice in animal law? Well, perhaps I have to answer that question in a few steps because I don't think I got there in one. I, okay. I think that I think the first step was that in grade school, I fell in love with a golden retriever, and my father had to give the dog away because the dog chased cars and was aggressive to a neighbor. But the loss of that dog was a big event in my life, and probably the strongest source of pain emotionally for me, which is one reason I can relate to why pet custody is so important to people. That was the number one worst experience in my childhood. And another thing that happened in my childhood was we went to my grandmother's farm of origin in North Dakota, and I hated the farm but did not know it had been sprayed by DDT. So all the birds and bugs were dead. Mm -hmm. And years later, and this was about 2002, I was sitting in front of my television one night, 
and there was a an ad really to go on the Yangtze River before the the dam was complete, and it was almost as if something had reached to me through the television. It suggested that I needed to go. I needed to go now, and that whatever was going to happen when I got there was going to change my life. And I did go, and I did stand pretty much alone on this boat, waiting for some message to be delivered to me. And what happened was I stood there on the boat looking at another silent spring. I'm not seeing birds. I'm not seeing bugs. I'm not seeing wildlife. Everything is dead. Did and you recognize that at the time? Did you know? Did you notice it was, that at the time? I knew, I knew it was big, but it wasn't like the lightning flashed and I got it. It, uh, it was like a, uh, kind of going through molasses. It took me months, and, and then it just surfaced. And somewhat what ironically, what huh? It took you months to figure out what was off about that place when you, when you were there? Yeah, I can't, you know, I can't put a, a, a time period on when I got it. Mm-hmm. But I, I was moving right toward animal law. It was like there's the something unnerving about that. When I was invited to join the fellows, um, I, I thought, oh, uh-oh, I better join the ABA first because you have to be an ABA member to be invited into the fellows. <laughs> yeah. so, so I quick look for the ABA. I can't imagine anybody else who would have done that, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, to look, I had to look for an ABA committee to join. I thought, well, an animal law one would be perfect. But there wasn't an animal law one in the ABA. I spent hours researching it, which is, of course, is why I had to start it. Yeah. So now you have pets yourself, yes? I do. Okay. And and what are those? One is a yellow lab, and one is a yellow lab lookalike, who's a rescue dog. When you say look like, okay, see now I've seen your pets and they both look like yellow labs to me. <laughs> Was is is that second one not a purebred? Well, one of the clues that he's not is that you, if you touch him, his coat is a little too soft for a yellow lab. Oh, oh, I just thought he was cuddly. What? Oh, he's a nice dog. That's interesting to know. Yeah. So now, here's here's a common question that I suspect you get a lot, and I'm going to ask it because I suspect that some of the listeners might be wondering about this. Are you an animal rights activist? I don't use the word animal rights in talking about myself. Okay. Well, why not, and what's the difference between activism and what you do? Well, maybe what I should say is the distinction really turns on the word rights, I think when people hear the word animal rights, they sometimes think of the PETA organization, and Mm -hmm. their approach to animal law is very different than mine. Um, I see that as somewhat of a judgmental right or wrong kind of group, and and my path is more like mainstreaming animals, mainstreaming animal laws, you know, broad tent, bringing everybody into the tent, Good people, moral people, decent people care and love animal care about and love animals, and they're going to develop laws that are kind and moral and and reflect the goodness in humans and If I remember right, for those who are not familiar with the PETA organization, this is the group that um exposes cruelty to animals and advocates vegetarianism by, you know, trying to turn people off eating chickens and beef by showing the cruel conditions under which some of them are treated. Is that the same group? It's probably the same group, and I'm not saying uh, that, that there's anything wrong with this group. I'm saying that they have convictions about how they want the world to be, and I'm coming at maybe the same subject in a different way. Yeah, because their their paradigm is clearly that we should stop, among other things, we should stop eating them, um, whereas that's not necessarily, well, in fact, that's not even how you come at it. Talk to us about what animal law involves. Well, I think of it as a very broad subject matter, so if you were talking, for example, about tort law, 
the animal law part of it would be, for example, veterinary malpractice. If you were talking about divorces, the animal law part would be pet custody. If you were talking about probate, it would be can you provide for the future care of your animal in the will. If it was criminal law, it would be the anti-cruelty laws that pertain to pets. If it was wildlife law, it would be the habitat protection, um, the endangered species, that kind of issue. It's a very, very broad topic. If, if it's housing, um, can um, you bring your cat uh, to public housing? If you're an elderly person, can you bring your cat to the nursing home? It's a very broad spectrum of issues about where animals are allowed to be, uh, the survival of animals, whether they're going to continue to exist in the wild at all. That I care a lot a about great, that issue. I care a lot about a, the animals in the wild. Well, that that is a very helpful example because it really puts into concrete terms the kinds of issues that you deal with when you're thinking about animal law, and I would suspect that most people have had to deal with some issue or some question that involved uh, animal law that you're describing without even realizing that maybe that's what it, it, it would be categorized as. So now to kick us off with our clips, uh, those of you listeners who have heard the show before know that I always like to use clips that are um, uh, hopefully reasonably relevant to the topic at hand. So we're going to start with our first one right now. Something. I thought you said they wanted to keep her. Well, they changed their mind, didn't they? Couldn't get rid of her fast enough once the subject of money was mentioned. She doesn't look very happy about it. Nonsense. Where is that dratted fellow hiding? Hines! Just come in. <laughs> yes, sir. What's the matter with this dog? Um, matter, Your Grace? Look at her, man. Well... You mean uh, not taking the food and that? Uh, used to table scraps and all sorts, I should say. They have no idea how to handle dogs down in that village. Don't you worry your pretty little head about it, miss. I'll have her eating kennel style in a day or so. What's her name? Yeah. They never bothered to give her one. Called her lass or lassie. It just means girl. No feeling for animals in my experience. Don't worry. We'll give her a proper name. The one she's got. Lassie? See? She knows it's her. Come on. We can come back and see her later. Why can't we take her up to the house with us? When she's settled, let her get used to us first. I'll see you eat. If I have to push your bloody food down your throat. Yeah, that's right. Take a good look at me. I'm in charge now. Whether we love them or hate them, many of us talk to our animals. You are listening to The Speedway Show, where we are talking to accomplished and esteemed lawyer Barbara J. Gislason about her views on animal law. If you have friends who would like uh, that you would like to refer this show to, it will be available on demand at www.thespewayshow.com after today. You just heard a clip from the show of the pet that I grew up watching and loved, the beautiful collie Lassie. Not only was Lassie incredibly intuitive, but in the show she exhibited acute intuition and as a former dog owner and current dog lover, I would tell you that that kind of intelligence in a dog is not all fictional at all. So, Barbara, first let's talk about animal intuition because I think it's such an interesting and rather mysterious topic. Can I interrupt I and, and, and make one comment, uh, Speedway? Absolutely. Yes. The the clip that you just played, I believe, is from the film Lassie Come Home. Yeah. That film is a guaranteed tearjerker for me. <laughs> is it? Yes. It's like, what, what are your top three films that will make you cry? That's one of the three. I love oh, that, though. Yeah. Yeah, I, I watched it 
more than once when I was a kid. So actually when I was thinking about the show, I thought, oh, of course, I need to go find that movie. So, yes, I can well understand. So now, speaking of animal intuition, I remember being fascinated by all of the stories that were reported just in August of this year, 2011, in Washington, D.C., about all the animals that sounded off early warnings before the earthquake that hit the east coast of the United States. And uh, I remember, let's see, they, the report was that 15 minutes before the quake hit Washington, D.C., the red-ruffed lemurs sounded the first alarm. The flamingos that are normally one or two body lengths apart ran together in this kind of huddled flock. The elephants were standing on alert. And at the great ape house, the mother gorilla, Mandara, let out an alarm call, grabbed her baby, and took her to the top of the trees in the exhibit so she could protect her. And wouldn't you know it, a few seconds after that, the 5.8 magnitude earthquake rolled through Washington, D.C. Barbara, do you think these reports of the intuition of animals out of Washington, D.C. are isolated? No. Well, that was quick. (laughs) You want me to to tell you what I think is going on? Tell me what you think is going on. I really would like to know. Well, one of the things that's said about humans is that they don't necessarily live in the present. They sometimes live in the past and even in the future. Mm -hmm. Recently, there was a very interesting study done with regard to the effect of mindful meditation on the human brain. Oh, And they found that people who did good training on mindfulness had a different gray matter ratio in their brain than people who did not. No way. Yes. So I have a theory on this, and I and I and, I, and this theory is an advance of of the science to back it up. But I think that that research is pointing toward what they'll find. I think that people who are mindful and who are in the present probably would have had much more ability than other humans to predict the very same thing that these animals predicted in Washington, D.C., because they're in the present and their senses and everything about them is attuned to the present. And I'll bet you there's something about that that makes the animals able to do that. Wow. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. Um, Hmm. That's an interesting study. So do you meditate? I imagine uh, being filled with light. Okay. You consider the process meditation? I consider it pretending that I'm being filled with light. (laughs) Okay. That's an interesting thing because, you know, I, I, I learned how to meditate a couple of years ago. And... I do find, and I I hear this all the time from people who meditate, that there is a, they find it much easier to focus and concentrate. So when I, when I'm, when my meditation game is on, I can go to work and I can focus uh, in a way on the work that I have in front of me at any given time in a way that I tend not to do as well when I'm not meditating. So that that what you just cited absolutely resonates with me because I listen to you and I go, oh, I totally get that. And I find, too, that when I'm, when I'm really consistent, that my level of intuition actually does increase. And, um, you know, I have my theories about why that is, but, but you're well, I have, my I have experience. Some, mm-hmm. Yeah, I have something to add on that. I'm, I'm currently writing a book on pet custody, for the American Bar Association Family Law Section, and I am having trouble focusing writing the book because everything well, is of to interest to me. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I'll, you, I must learn how to do meditation so it will be a better, more efficient book writer. Yeah, you sit down every morning and every night and you spend a little more time each day, just even if all you do is you just imagine yourself filled with light, and I promise you, you'll see results. Do that for 30 days, and your writing will be much better. Or at least you'll be, it'll be easier to harness your attention. <laughs> so, but now here we are off topic. Um, but question uh, that I was, go- I was going to ask you, have you had personal experiences like this 
as, as we're talking about this Washington, D.C. situation, where animals around you seemed to have some deeper level of intuition than you would have expected. Well, I bring my yellow labs to my law office, and mm-hmm. they are pretty attuned when I have a family law case to the emotional condition of the person sitting across the room from me. And even if the person looks perfectly fine sitting across from me, I'm not detecting anything in their voice, not detecting anything in their face. If there's something really wrong, one of my dogs will bark. Really? He just doesn't do it unless there's something really wrong. And I, I, I will consistently say to the person, my dog barks when there's something really wrong that I don't detect. Is there more going on with you? And it's always yes. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Hmm. That's pretty amazing. I remember there was one time I had, I used to have a Pomeranian, and uh, her name was Kuzi, and I had had her since she was uh, a puppy. And Kuzi was an incredibly hyperactive little creature, and she was just as adorable as could be. But um, she was full of high energy, and I remember there was this one time, I was going through a divorce at the time, so you can imagine how depressed and unhappy and sad I was. And I remember this one day where I was just sitting on the couch feeling just so low and so sorry for my poor little self, right? And, oh, my world was falling apart. And Cookie came along, and she sat in front of me for a moment, and she looked up at me, And she just hopped onto my lap, and she just put her head on my lap, and she just lay there. And it was something, and and by this time, Kudzi probably had to be about 12 years old, and she had never done that before. And I just felt like, you know what, this dog really understands. In that moment, it was like we didn't have to say anything. I didn't need to say anything. She just understood, and she was there to be a comfort. So I, I echo what you just said. And speaking of animal intuition, we're going to listen to our second clip. And this is a fictional clip from a movie that I truly enjoyed. And, uh, Barbara, I know you've seen it. It is uh, the Michael Crichton uh, work of fiction called Congo. And uh, this is a piece about a talking gorilla. Lights, please. It's hard to get grants for what I do. Most people just don't really believe it. They think it's a parlor trick, a gag. But it's no gag, ladies and gentlemen. With this new technology, I can demonstrate it in a way in which it has never been possible to demonstrate it before. Animals can talk. Amy, could you come down here, please? Human hybrids and biobanks. 
and I gave that speech last week, and I uh, was uh, able to convey my concern about genetic transfer of genes between species, uh, in large part due to Michael Crichton's work. It's powerful what he has imagined, and it's not really the stuff of fiction. The, the work of Michael Crichton is pointing toward the changing of the primates, and, and given how intelligent they are, given how splendid they are, given how highly developed they are, given what close cousins they are, given how close we are genetically, um, I feel an intense passion to help them and to educate the public about their plight and what could be happening in the near future to them uh, with biotechnology because um, there is an intense desire by scientists to use them with regard to research on cancer and strokes. And so because they look a little different than us, it's permissible to do these things to them. And it it it's horrible, in my view. How was your how was your talk received? It was uh, received with great warmth all over this international uh, conference of lawyers in all disciplines from many countries. We're forty five um, lawyers from Morocco alone. I I couldn't have gotten a warmer reception. I was even quoted in the the closing ceremony uh, in in the Congress. So it's um, going to be a new step for me uh, to be very active with regard to bioengineering topics and specifically with regard to primates. You know, from time to time, I have picked up here and there snippets of this issue that there are experiments that are performed on animals in ways that are, you know, aside from the fact that they're harmful because they're intended to be, right, because sometimes animals are infected with diseases to see how they respond to certain medications and they're uh, treated as um, essentially disposable. Part of what I'm wondering as I'm listening to you is, you know, you've got your path cut out for you and you're you're speaking and you are writing about this topic, but to the average listener who is parked on their couch, sitting at their computer, um, petting their cat. Uh, is, there, is there anything that we can do on an individual basis to either get involved in this dialogue or to contribute in a positive way to it? Well, I think the biggest difficulty in our culture is that animals aren't taken seriously. They're somewhat treated um, as frivolous, they're marginalized. They're all cute puppy and kitty stories. They use silly names for the pets and the articles. It's a very strange media presentation of really serious subjects. And there are lots of dogs still being used in this country for dog fighting. They're full of scars. It's it's cruel. There's all kinds of harm coming to these lovely animals. And why we don't think it's worthy of our attention all the time is is really mystifying. It doesn't reflect well with regard to the morality of the human race that we don't consider them as part of, I'll say, God's creatures, you know, the whole idea of, of creatures great and small. I think that humans show respect for themselves and in their own integrity by passing laws that are kind to animals. Uh, for example, with regard to divorce, the courts right now don't want to give mental time to thinking about where an animal would should live. So like if one of the people have spent all their time caring for the animal like, like you'd care for your dog and devoting their time and energy to the animal, the court could easily give that dog, the one that you love so much, to the other party who traveled all the time and didn't care about it and was just trying to get revenge on you. I mean, animals are cruelly used in the legal system in the United States, and it's just not necessary. 
um, the courts could have the authority to take into account in making decisions with regard to pets and divorces very simple and easy-to-apply criteria, including um, the relationship between the human uh, and the and the individual animal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and why and why you why the court would easily give a person the car they drove or easily give a person the computer they programmed or or the recorder with their personal songs in it and why they completely understand that these mechanical things belong with a particular person and then, you know, stand back and say, Well we can't think about this 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 quality of emotion. Why can't we as humans think about love relationships? Why is that so difficult and why is it so marginalized? I think we're better off if we can go there. Have you found that the court system is still, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Backward. That's that's what, <laughs> okay, backward. Because that's what, that's what, it sounds like as you're describing it to me. It's a, there's a there's a deep indifference to animals, which is is a little surprising for me because you know that the one time that people seem to really pay attention to animals is you know our own pets. We love our pets. We give them like you said. We give them silly names, and they get carried around in baskets. And they get, you know, we we treat them in ridiculous ways. We treat um, them as family members. We refer to them as family members. We have them we on our voice like We have them in our family photographs. Yes, and so given that, I am surprised that still today we have a court system that is so backward or indifferent to the plight of animals in a divorce or custody situation where the owners are separating. Have you seen any improvement in that over the years, or is it about the same as it has always been? Well, I'll tell you this. Every time a judge um, makes a decision about animals, you know, in this kind of way that that takes into account something about the quality of life or the best interest of the animal, that judge makes sure I know about it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. They're really well, proud to tell me. They're really proud to tell me that they've, you know, done this, um, you know, with sensitivity to the pet. I'm, I mean, I think slowly the the judges are waking up to the fact that this is important. But I think it really matters that your individual listeners communicate with their legislators that this is a serious topic to them. That they want laws on the books that promote the welfare of animals and that that you know that have consequences for cruelty and it it's a, it's a values based law and i i think that it reflects well on humans that they extend their circle of love beyond the human species um when couples disagree in dealing with their pets typically how often do you see this happen? Because, you know, given the the sheer numbers of people who own pets, I would, and, and given that divorce rate is somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% for second, first marriages and then it goes down from there, I would guess that this whole question of pet custody might come up quite frequently. Is that is that true? I think that a majority of divorcing couples are able to, amicably resolve pet issues and part of it's because the pets often follow where the children are going to have their primary residence and often because for a divorcing couple one may be in a house where they can actually have that animal and one may be going to an apartment or a condo where they couldn't so i I, i'd say that it's the minority of the cases where there's a pet custody issue but when they arise um a lot of them are, arise for the wrong reasons. I don't know if I'm grammatically correct on that, but um, what I'm trying to say is I that when there is, a, <laughs> when there is a pet custody issue, I think that sometimes it's because um, both parties are very attached to the animal and they're trying to figure out 
um, an arrangement somewhat like a child custody arrangement. Maybe the animal would go back and forth or there'd be some way for both of the parties emotionally contact, connected to the animal to stay in touch with it. And sometimes the reason there's a pet custody dispute is is revenge. Or another reason could be domestic abuse and the abuser is going for the animal to uh, that's to exercise power over the uh, the the person that's been harmed. Mm-hmm. It's an extension well, you know, of that person in a way. Yeah, and 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 if you couple that with a judge who is perhaps indifferent at best as to that particular question and where should the animal go. I can easily see how that would spell all kinds of trouble for uh, not just the animal, but you know the emotional um, stability of the of the of the abused. Because now, on top of having been abused, now I'm being you know deprived of perhaps what was my pet and my solace. And given that this person was abusive to me, perhaps I'm imagining all sorts of horrible things that might happen to my pet. Well, I think that it's known in the states that have now allowed the courts to extend protective orders when there is domestic violence, not just to humans, but to a pet that could be affected by violence. I think in that very limited way, the courts are realizing that violence toward humans extends to pets. And laws have been passed in places like Minnesota very Mm -hmm. recently. Uh, on that subject, Minnesota gets an A for that one. Wow, really? Yes. Is that something that, do you expect that those kinds of laws to expand across and be adopted in multiple states as sometimes we see certain movements that kind of start in one state and then they sort of creep along and over time they kind of blanket the United Yes, I think that the parallel would be in the 1990s, all the states passed animal cruelty laws, and I think most of them became felonies, and at least for pets. And then I think that the, the, the wave in this decade will be all the states will have laws that extend order for protections to pets, and I think that probably by the end of the decade, um, at least half the states will have pet custody laws, and um, maybe I'll be wrong, and all, all of them will, but I think it's going to be slow, and I think it will follow the the order for protection aspect. Okay. Because that's where the judges will get it first. And the legislature can understand that one a lot more easily. I, I think that as science comes together with animal law and people better understand the science of emotions and don't treat it as messy, like th- these ideas of love, but part of what a rational person is, Mm-hmm. There's really been a fantastic book written by Antonio Damasio. It's called Descartes' Error. He's now at UCLA and, and like the top guy for like creativity in the brain. I think that the kind of work that he's doing, even though it's not directed toward pets or animals, I think that what he's doing will directly impact how we perceive animals and the emotional bond between humans and animals. I, I think great things are coming through science to help animals. Well, good. Well, this takes us to our final and pretty short clip for our show. This came from the show Benji. Take a listen. Well, Benji, I guess between the two of us we got you another reprieve. I'm glad to. <laughs> okay, down you go. It's a shame we have to go through this because he's really a nice man. He's just a little stubborn on something. Oh, gonna eat and run, huh? One of these days, I'm gonna follow you just to see where you go. <laughs> You've got more independence than most people, <laughs> and more charm. <laughs> have a good day. So that was the movie Benji, and uh, it was about a mixed-breed dog that had this uncanny knack for being in the right place at the right time, usually to help someone overcome some sort of problem. 
Barbara, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, um, have you have you did you have you watched any of the Benji shows? No. No. Okay. Well, I watched Lassie a lot more often than I watched Benji and I you know, picked that one just because I thought, Oh, two dogs, Benji and Lassie. <laughs> this is great. So Unless let's Benji, talk Benji's not the sheepdog, is it? No, Benji was a little mutt and he was he was a smallish dog that was just kind of you're not just you're just not sure what he did, what he was and uh he would wander around town every day and he would just go hang out with different people and it was funny cuz they'd all call him different things so he'd go by this grocery store and the grocer called him Sam and um he hung out with him and the grocer talked to him this was a, a woman who was a housekeeper and she had two kids two little kids that she took care of, and there was a big secret because the dad did not know that Benji would come over for breakfast and he'd hang out with the kids and they'd feed him. And so it was this sort of clandestine relationship (laughs) where everybody was conspiring to keep away from the dad the fact that they had this dog that showed up every day for, you know, love, care, and consortium. Well, I'm voting that we um, tell our local cable access station to carry Benji so I can watch him. Well, good luck with that. I had to go to Netflix to find it. Uh, no, it wasn't Netflix. It was Blockbuster. I had to go. I had to. I had to order it online because I went to my local uh, my local store, and they even they didn't carry it because it's been a while. So now let's talk a little bit in the moments that we have left about animals in disaster situations. In your experience, Barbara, what are some of the challenges that pet owners and their animals face when disaster strikes? Well, one of the most important things is for people to get their animal microchipped before the disaster strikes and to put the the information in more than one place so that if the animal is found that they can figure out where the people are now and match the information with the animal that's being held somewhere. There's a huge problem, and this is a problem that I worked on, for five years in the American Bar Association, together with Professor Favor at Michigan State and um, a Board of Governors uh, attorney named Jim Carr, we got through the ABA resolution that all the states should adopt standards to notify the public of how long animals should be held before they could be adopted out and, for example, rehomed. And that's a big deal because people in disasters don't have a home to take their animals back, perhaps. And um, there's very short periods of time when an animal, after an animal is lost, before the state likes to think that it can give title to the animal to somebody else. In fact, I had a huge uh, case in Minnesota involving um, a lost animal when somebody was out of town at a funeral and trying to get that animal back three days after it had been adopted out. It was really a lot of work. And it has to do with kind of unreasonable ideas about title passing to animals, no matter how hard a person is looking to try to get them back. Mm-hmm. So a big issue is trying to be decent to people who've gone through disasters and enable them to get their animals back if they take reasonable action to locate the animal. And and that kind of thing. Um, websites like Pet Finder, for example, post images of animals. I actually went to a lot of work with Intel uh, to get their cooperation with the American Red Cross to have an, a Pet Finder kind of button on on the wasn't that organization specifically, but it was an animal button at the American Red Cross that helped people identify their lost animals. And the American Red Cross right now is starting to have co-locations for pets in disasters. So instead of just telling people who have a pet goodbye at the door and letting them wander back into uh, horrible weather conditions uh, with their pet in their arms so they you know, effectively just die, uh, they're, they're now realizing that people won't abandon their pets in disasters and there are more and more transportation laws in place like the Pets Act and more hotels that are pet-friendly, and there's a whole shift in the national consciousness that pets belong with humans, and they shouldn't be separated in disasters. It's a big, big shift in national consciousness. 
Well, this is extremely encouraging. I'm actually very happy to hear that. Now, what happens if um, you have a pet that shows signs of neglect or abuse by the owner? Does that animal always go back to the owner? That was a huge issue with some of the foster families following Hurricane Katrina. They could tell that the animals that were rescued had been used as fighting dogs because they were so heavily scarred. And I'm pretty sure that those foster people were going to give those animals back over their dead body. And um, I I haven't heard of any case being litigated uh, post-Katrina where an animal was clearly a fighting animal. Have you? By the way, um, some uh, good some good news there. What? Um, one of my one of my friends was a sma- special master for the Michael Vick dogs, and those of course were fighting dogs. And through the efforts of best friends, some of those fighting dogs are now pet therapy dogs. What is a pet therapy dog? Like uh, they they get a special kind of license, and they could go into like a hospital and visit people, and they have the right demeanor and do the right kind of thing, or go into a school and sit there and let children read to them and kind of encourage the kids. That's a whole new really? cool thing for pets to do, yes. Well, that is really cool, but, I w- you know, I would have thought that a pet, a, a dog that we, that was used in that way would be so scarred and perhaps so mean and so vicious because of all of the cruelty that... You know, I, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that you can actually, they can actually be used in, in that way among kids. And it's a, it's older. an amazing story. Uh, I'm not saying that it, that these animals were easily helped or inexpensively helped, but the uh-huh. fact that these injured animals could be saved, uh, it's an amazing wow. story. That is amazing. That's the story you don't hear about in the news, right? <laughs> Nobody talked about that. And, and, you know, I have to confess, I did not for one moment wonder what happened to those dogs. I remember just thinking, wow, just as, you know, I, I remember being happy that they had been rescued and that Michael Vig had been punished, but it never occurred to me to wonder what happened to the dogs that survived. So that is a, that, that's a really good story. And I salute Rebecca Haas for making that possible. She is the special master who did the heavy lifting. Oh, wow, that's pretty amazing. Well, you know, this brings us to the end of our show today, which makes me kind of sad because this is actually a very interesting topic and we could probably talk about this for quite a while. Barbara, thank you so much for joining me and our listeners here on the Speedway Show. Speedway, thank you for having me. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about Barbara's work, which is fascinating work, you can find the link on the description for this episode at thespeedwayshow.com, or you can go directly to her website at Barbara at, whoa, wait a minute, it's gislesonlaw.com, isn't it? Did I get that? Yes. Right? It's gislesonlaw.com. And for those of you who haven't wandered around the com lately, I encourage you to check out the new customized Amazon store and participate in the Sound Off featured question. Your answer may be aired on a future show. You can also find suggested reading lists and new content for some of the shows. So some of the notes from this show will be available after it airs and keep checking back for more content. You can also visit the Facebook fan page, uh, facebook.com slash the Speedway Show. And you can also follow me on Twitter, www.twitter.com slash, you guessed it, the Speedway Show. There you have it, lots of ways to interact. Join us next week when Sheila Ford and I will be tackling the very adult question, why wait for sex? Until next week, this is Speedway saying go in peace and please, please do take absolutely wonderful care of those pets. Thank you for joining us on the Speedway Show. Until next time, live well, live fully, and love deeply.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.